0: This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone.
1: Are we going to stand with God? Come what may. If the word of God says it, I believe it.
2: And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford.
0: Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. I'll tell you... I'm getting to the point of thinking I need to never take a day off. I need to never go out of town, which is necessary from time to time, because every time I seem to go out of town, some huge story breaks and I'm chomping at the bit to get back to the microphone. And in this case, unbelievable. Russell Moore's out. He's out Dr. Russell Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission at the Southern Baptist Convention, a man I have been warning people about since 2014, has finally said he's resigning and going over to his buddies at Christianity Today. What a match made in Heaven. I don't know if I want to use that phrase in this particular case, given the proclivities of Christianity today and everything that they push over there in liberal land. I do think, however, it is a really good match because I think Russell Moore being with Christianity today is just absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And I think it'll give him ample opportunity to further reveal to the masses exactly what a leftist he is. Not that we don't already know. In fact, I was putting together a list of all of the things Not even all of the things, but a top 10 sort of list of all the things that have been problematic about Dr. Russell Moore over the last eight years that he's been at the head of the ERLC. And it was so much longer than 10 points. So much longer than 10 points. Let's see. He insulted all of Christian talk radio. That's when he first came on my radar as a bad guy or at least somebody to watch. He, let's see, joined hands with progressives to recalibrate politics within the SBC. He had worked for a Democrat congressman once upon a time. So he was with this Democrat claimed, oh, well, he was a pro-life Democrat. And he's always kind of tried to straddle the line between the Democrat Party and the fact that, oh, I'm pro-life. Which brings me to another issue, which was the fact that he tried to reposition the pro-life issue as being holistic. Oh, we're not just concerned about abortion. We're also concerned about refugees. What does that have to do with anything? No, you just like liberal policies. You want amnesty. You want open borders. You want to push for this stuff through ridiculous organizations like the Evangelical Immigration Table, which was funded from George Soros's Open Society Foundation through the National Immigration Forum, which paid for the radio ads that the evangelical immigration table put on Christian radio, my show included Once Upon a Time. So you got that going for him. You have the whole LGBT issue in which he said ridiculous things like I wouldn't go to a gay wedding but I would go to the reception. What? Then he had the conference in 2014 where he didn't allow ex-gay Christians like some of the wonderful people associated with First Stone Ministries and Restored Hope Network who came to that conference and were told, sorry guys there's no room for you to have a booth at this conference. There's just no room. And they show up and there's all kinds of blank space there on the convention floor. The, I would say the room where they were having all of these booths. There was plenty of room. They weren't invited to speak. All these gay activists were invited there so they could reach out and have dialogue. Then Russell Moore and his cohorts go behind closed doors with gay activists. This was in 2014 and commiserated with them on who knows what, because it was a closed door secret meeting. And all we knew about this meeting is what was revealed by the human rights campaign, who had a particular representative at that meeting who wrote about it on the internet. That's how we found out about it. It was completely non-transparent. We're still trying to figure out what Russell Moore discussed with the gay activists behind closed doors in 2014. Yeah, you're never going to find out. Then you had the MLK 50 conference back in 2018, in which Russell Moore said time and time again, in the white American Bible Belt, the people of God had to choose between Jesus Christ and Jim Crow. Really? And tragically, many often chose to serve Jim Crow and to rename him Jesus Christ. Do I really need to comment on that ridiculous statement? Oh, let's see. He supported mosque building. I wrote about that back in 2017. And probably the biggest thing on the radar screen of a lot of people who aren't Southern Baptists is the fact that he was a never-Trumper, and he was incredibly arrogant and pompous about it. And he continually insulted conservatives. He continually insulted the Trump supporters within the Southern Baptist Convention. And he was just as arrogant and snide about it as he could possibly be. He was baiting the president at that time, the Candidate Donald Trump on the internet, leading Trump to respond and say that he was a nasty man with no heart and a terrible representative of evangelicals. Russell Moore then took that comment and was mocking it by putting it on his bio on his own Twitter account and describing himself as a terrible representative of evangelicals. And he put out Janet Jackson's nasty video, which I mean, this guy's supposed to be the head of an ethics and religious liberty commission. He's acting like a junior high boy. Let's not forget how it was. And by the way, when the Washington Post was recounting some of the Twitter activity between Donald Trump and Russell Moore, they left all the good parts out because Sarah Pulliam Bailey was writing it. She of Christianity Today at one time. Oh, look how the dots connect. Isn't that convenient? That's another thing I could throw in. Russell Moore and his absolute ability to join hands with certain media operatives to get his narrative out and try to push it down people's throats without the truth really being told. So you have Russell Moore at the Washington Post, and you have Russell Moore, you know, genuflecting uh, reporters writing about Russell Moore at the Atlantic and the New York Times. And he's such a brave, bold evangelical because he's not constrained by politics and the religious right, which he loved to kick and mischaracterized, by the way. I just could go on and on and on about this. Insulted basic Southern Baptist beliefs and and ran people down and, oh, you're putting politics above the gospel. This is the same guy who loved hopping on jets and going out to the White House and sitting down with Obama. Oh, really? How prophetic were you, Russell Moore, when you sat down with Barack Obama? Did you confront him about his pro-abortion policies and his love of Planned Parenthood? Did you confront him about Marxism? Did you confront him about race baiting? Did you confront him about any of his radical policies? Did you confront him about Benghazi? Did you, I mean, no. Who are we kidding? He didn't confront him about any of it. He was was filmed grinning ear to ear like the Cheshire cat sitting down with Barack Obama. And he couldn't have cared less about the Southern Baptists who sat back home and said, what just happened here? What just Here we had Richard Land at the ERLC for 25 years and he went forward and he basically did a, a decent job upholding the conservative values that Southern Baptists share, which are based on the word of God. And who is this guy? He's Al Mohler's pick to click, folks. He was Al Mohler's pick to click. Just keep that in mind. We've learned a lot, haven't we, in the last eight years about the SBC elite, not just Russell Moore, but about those people who wanted him there and never said a word to denigrate him, never said a word to rebuke him, but held him in that good grace that they have for their own. Don't forget. Oh, yes. He also didn't stand up for churches that were being trampled on by Democrat tyrants during the pandemic. Instead, he was virtue signaling by putting masks on. One picture I saw looked like he had two masks on. Fauci would be so proud of you, Russell Moore. And talking about how psyched he was that he got the vaccine. Good for you, Russell Moore. Who cares? Where were you when it mattered? Where were you when you had all of those churches in California, for example, getting their rights trampled on by these tyrants from the party that you seem to have loved in the past and worked for? Where were you? He was writing about things like country music, Johnny Cash, one of his favorite subjects, writing about who knows you know, what he was observing in his fishbowl on his desk. I'm making that one up. He didn't care. He didn't care. Then you had the ERLC, Lying to the Fifth Circuit in a lawsuit about the jurisdiction of the SBC and how things are organized and who has control of what. There's so much out there. It's exhausting to try to go back. But I am going back in part because I want to go back to an important passage of Scripture. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This man has been a divisive man almost from day one as the head of the ERLC. And love him or hate him or whatever you feel about Russell Moore. It is unconscionable to me that that man was allowed to be in that position for as long as he was allowed to be in that position, given how divisive he was. Because the Bible does speak about the evils of being divisive and dividing the body of Christ. On that point alone, before anything I've just mentioned ever transpired, he should have been relieved of his duties. But his new job is going to be very interesting, especially given some of the stuff that I'm going to tell you when we come back. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Please don't go away. I'll come right back. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. This is Janet Mefford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers
2: of Christ. I've seen people, Being changed by reading the scripture, giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life.
0: Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's Word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $100 sends 20. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates, Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org jmt today for more information call 855-585-4237 855-585-4237 or libertyhealthshare.org jmt
2: you're listening to janet
0: mefford today and now here's janet We are back, and I'm sorry I'm a couple of days behind on commenting on the exit, stage left of Russell Moore, and I do mean left. Going to Christianity Today, was there ever a better match than Christianity Today and Russell Moore? I can't think of one. Christianity Today announced the hiring of Russell Moore to serve as a full-time public theologian for the publication, (laughs) I'm trying not, I'm losing it, I'm sorry, and to lead a new public theology project. Now, what I find particularly hilarious about this and ironic about this is woke pre. Preacher Clips, which is a great Twitter account that finds all of these great comments from videos about woke preachers all over evangelicalism, unearthed a particular interview that Russell Moore gave. He appeared on the Gospel Coalition's Gospel Bound podcast in January, and this is kind of just amazing to consider these comments of his, given the fact that he is going to be the new head of the Public Theology Project at Christianity Today. Uh, I want you to listen to this. Colin Hansen was hosting this podcast. And first, I want to play for you what Colin Hansen asked him. It's a little long. These people get very long winded. Listen to Colin Hansen here in cut one.
3: Here's something you write about seminary students. You say this, some people even seemed bored by biblical or doctrinal or practical truths that couldn't be marshaled in debates against others. This is the spirit of the age." End quote. Here's something, Russell, I've been trying to just run over in my head. I've noticed that Baptists in particular, and I count myself among the Baptists, even though I'm not in a Southern Baptist congregation, but that Baptists in particular seem to be especially attuned to political dynamics, by which I mean how their views position themselves in relation to others And in many cases, it almost seems to be more important to them than their orientation toward biblical truth. I'm wondering if that's a byproduct of the democratic polity of Baptist churches with congregational votes and that kind of authority, but I might be way off base here. So here's your chance to set me straight. What am I observing, uh, right or wrong, and where does this seem to come from?
0: All right. to, To summarize what he's asking here, he was quoting something that Russell Moore presumably wrote in his, I don't know, latest book, who knows, And Russell Moore wrote, quote, some people even seemed bored by biblical or doctrinal or practical truths that couldn't be marshaled in debates against others. This is the spirit of the age. So it seems what he was complaining about was the tendency of some of the seminary students he's come across only wanting to get something from the Bible that they can use in a debate. This is the same man over the last eight years who has done nothing but weaponize the Bible against conservatives. Just keep this in mind. Nobody has been as political as this guy. It's just he's been on the wrong side of the aisle the entire time. But then he has a tendency to gaslight his opponents and accuse them. Really, it's projection and accuse his opponents of doing the evil things that, in fact, he's doing and his friends are doing. He's a master at this kind of manipulative language. So how does he respond to Colin Hansen asking, hey, is this just a problem that that Baptists have, that they're especially attuned to political dynamics and it's more important to them than biblical truth? Hey, keep in mind, Colin Hansen isn't talking about the libs. In the Southern Baptist Convention. He's going after conservatives too. Those crazy political, religious right people. These guys are such snobs. Anyway, this is how Russell Moore answered. This is cut two.
2: Yeah, I think you're a little bit off base there because I think that this is not unique yeah. uh, to Baptist life. I, I see this phenomenon taking place uh in all sorts of uh, sectors across uh, evangelicalism. And it it sort of shows up in different ways. So uh, t- take aside politics for a minute, if what we mean by politics is sort of partisan, who's up, who's right. down, you know, so forth. But if you think about it in terms of controversy, uh, th- this is what I was talking about in the book, is that I would encounter a lot of, th- there was a time when, Uh, At the very beginning of my ministry, when I looked around at cultural Christianity and saw this as a problem, I thought the answer to cultural Christianity would be a theological resurgence. Uh, And so when you start seeing that people being much more attuned to theology, I I really thought this is what is needed uh, to correct this. I no longer I no longer think that because theology alone uh, is not going to correct this when the theology often becomes even good theology often can become just one more form of cultural Christianity. And the way that can show up is with uh, people who will know a lot of theology But what they know is how to argue whatever are the points of specific controversy at the moment.
0: You mean yourself, because that's exactly what you've been doing for the last eight years, harnessing theology to fight for your version of cultural Christianity, which is absolutely in line with what every secular leftist is doing. Yes. He claims he's pro-life. Yes. He claims he's pro-marriage. He has to claim those things. I'm not saying that he doesn't believe them, but he stays on those sides. You know, he's very careful. This guy is a political operative. He knows exactly how to play the game. He would never be in that position if he weren't fully pro-life. But what he does with a pro-life issue is he says, it's not just about babies. Oh no. Pro-life is not just about babies. It's about immigrants. It's about illegal aliens. Oh no, he doesn't say that. Uh, I don't know what he calls them, some politically correct terminology of people swarming across the border. And they're, oh, they're created in the image of God because we all forgot that. We didn't know that everybody was created in the image of God till Russell Moore came along and told us every five minutes. It's a it's a guilting thing. That's how you guilt people. If you don't care about people created in the image of God flooding across the borders, then you don't care about people created in the image of God. It's a ridiculous argument. It's manipulation. Of course, we care about everybody creating the image of God. How about they come here legally, like all the other immigrants have? Get in line the way a lot of other people from Mexico and Central America have done, or wherever you're coming from. Nobody's against immigration, per se, although you could make an argument that perhaps it might be time to tone it down, given the state of America and the the budget strain that we have in every state in the union, and certainly federally speaking, it's completely out of control. It, it, this is just incredible. But keep in mind, this is the guy who's saying, I no longer think the answer to cultural Christianity is a theological resurgence. And he's heading over to Christianity today to become a full-time public theologian. <laughs> and he's heading up the public theology project. But just keep in mind, it was only a few months ago that he said, yeah, I don't think a theological resurgence is really going to stem the tide of cultural Christianity. As he has gone around doing nothing but, but for, putting forward cultural. Christianity. He's woke. He's into critical race theory. He's all on the MLK 50. And you know, you're all a bunch of white supremacists, and you're you're you don't care about racial justice. This guy ticks every box on the woke chart. But he's going to tell us that uh, no, theology won't care. We don't need theological resurgence so much as we need biblical resurgence. We need to have an understanding of who the Lord is and what His Word really says. And we don't need any more people coming around using the Bible to try to turn everybody left, which is what he's been doing for the last eight years. But he's going to be a tremendous public theologian for Christianity today.
2: One more cut. This is cut three. And what I think is is necessary for following Christ is a, a shaping and forming by the scripture that is not all just at the cognitive level. In other words, the, the word of God is shaping and forming you even in ways that you're not aware of at the time and preparing you for questions that you're not asking at the time and maybe no one else is asking at, at the time. So if we if we think about, uh, for instance, uh, Jesus in his, t- his desert temptations. Uh, People will often say, notice that Jesus is quoting scripture. And that's exactly right. That's key. But what Jesus is not doing is quoting back scriptures that he learned in order to combat the question of what do you do about turning uh, bread and stone uh, stone into bread. (laughs) Instead, what Jesus is doing is quoting from Deuteronomy 6 and quoting from Deuteronomy 8 and quoting from the Psalms indicating that he knows exactly where he is, that he is standing where Israel had stood before and he's standing there in the spirit. And I think that's often what, uh, that's often what's missing.
0: No, what's missing is you've missed the entire point of Jesus and his temptations by the devil in the wilderness. Have you actually read the passage? What are you talking about? Jesus was using those passages because he was countering the devil. When the devil was tempting him and wanting to use scripture to try to mislead the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Lord came back with the right Bible passages to put the devil in his place. Had nothing to do with standing there in the spirit and standing where Israel had stood before. What is this guy talking about? Go to Christianity today, please. And by the way, I thought it was pretty hilarious. He put out a new ERLC—I don't know what it was—an email thing, a thing, a jigger. More to the point, his newsletter, and in there he talked about uh, being 19 years old and thinking, "I want to be president of the Christian Life Commission," which was what preceded the ERLC. Well, it's kind of funny because in an article he wrote on his website in 2009, he said, "Quote: I had illusions that I was going to be governor of Mississippi one day." Well, wait. Which was it? You always wanted to be the head of the Christian Life Commission if the governor of Mississippi job didn't work out for you? I don't know. These guys contradict themselves all the time. Anyway, enjoy Christianity today, Russell Moore. I think you've done enough dividing of the body of Christ, and you are going to the perfect job. What needs to happen now is the SBC needs to put in a biblically faithful man. If they keep the ERLC around at all, which I'm pretty sure they probably shouldn't do anymore. You're listening to Janet Mafford today. This is Janet Mefford today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. Are we inching ever closer to a potential reversal of Roe v. Wade? A lot of us would like to think so, and the recent announcement that the Supreme Court will hear an important abortion case out of Mississippi has been a tentatively exciting encouragement. As my next guest says, the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization could be the court's most momentous abortion case since at least Gonzalez v. Carhart in 2007 and maybe even since Planned Parenthood v. Casey, all the way back in 1992. Dan McLaughlin is a former practicing attorney and serves as senior writer at National Review Online, where he has written a great piece, The Stakes of the Supreme Court's New Abortion Case. We're going to get his analysis now. Dan, welcome. So great to have you here. Glad to be here. Yeah. How significant would you say it is that the Supreme Court, with this now newly conservative majority, has decided to take up this particular case?
1: I mean, this is big. The question is, how big is it? Uh, You know, I think the courts, liberals, uh, have often been, you know, willing to work in very quick strokes uh, to change things. But even they have sometimes built their way up uh, by a series of cases to where they want to go. And so the question is, you know, in taking this case, uh, are the conservatives on the court, now that there are, you know, six Republican appointees, um, you know, and, and, and really all of them, uh, you know, either appointed by, George, by uh, 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 the two Bushes or by uh, President Trump, um, you know, are they willing to overturn Roe? Or are they willing to, if they're not going ready to do that yet, uh, are they possibly, I, I think that there's a very good chance that this case will at least chip away at it rather severely. Um, and if they don't, if they don't take any kind of real step against Roe in this case, I think a lot of pro-life uh, folks who have labored long and hard to put this court together uh, are going to be very deeply disappointed.
0: Oh, I think you're right. And I think you're absolutely right about the liberal majority never seeming to hesitate to go bold, a la Obergefell back in 2015, and the conservatives aren't as likely to do that sometimes. This is interesting, though. This, What is the central issue, would you say, in this particular case out of Mississippi that needs to be addressed? Because this is based on this Gestational Age Act banning most of the abortions after 15 weeks gestation. I know the abortion clinic that had gone for the injunction in the first place only does abortions up to 16 weeks. So what is the court specifically going to be addressing when it actually hears the case?
1: Well, first of all, it's going to address the merits of the case, because there was there was a question presented in the petition about whether or not the clinic had proper standing to sue. And the court did not agree to take that. Um, uh, It's possible that that will still be raised. But. But basically, and, and this is not a heartbeat bill case, by the way, there there are other heartbeat bill cases involving, you know, earlier uh, in-term abortions, uh, but this is only after 15 weeks. Um, so essentially what happened is that, you know, Roe, uh, back in 1973, just sort of divided pregnancy into trimesters, which made, you know, it, it didn't have any basis in the Constitution, right. but it, it at least made a kind of medical sense based on... The way the world looked at pregnancy in 1973, mm-hmm. um, and the courts started backing away from that already that framework uh, when it came back and 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 revised and extended Roe in in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. But under either regime, essentially, the lower courts have concluded that look, you cannot just ban abortions; you can regulate them, but you cannot ban them in the first two trimesters, uh, and. So the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, which is typically a a somewhat conservative circuit, um, ruled that you simply could not uh, pass this ban uh, and that there was not, you know, there was not really even any room for the court to assess, like, weighing the benefits and burdens of the law or anything like that. They just said absolutely out of bounds to ban abortions. Uh, And this isn't the complete abortion ban, by the way, but it, it, it has only very limited exceptions. Right. Right, uh, But to ban abortions uh, after 15 weeks, you can't do it. And so the court is, is presented with that question of, is that just totally out of bounds? Is it completely impossible for a state to do that?
0: Yeah. So now when you look at the decision at the Fifth Circuit in the Dobbs case, uh, this found that the they were bound to follow Casey is basically what they said in its viability standard, because that was a precedent at the Supreme Court. So do you see any scenario in which the Supreme Court could end up deciding that pain is the new standard, which has been discussed quite a bit in a lot of these state laws that have been passed protecting uh, babies in the womb? Could pain become the new standard under this case? Do you see any likelihood that that might come out of this?
1: I mean, it is possible. One thing that, that has to make even Justice Roberts, who is probably the most wobbly uh, <laughs> member of the court on this stuff, yeah. but one thing I think that maybe has to make Roberts a little more concerned is that you know it is possible the court could essentially throw out row throw out casey and put in a new set of constitutional rules that say you know what the states can still the states can still pass some laws but not other laws and here's a new standard now that new standard would not be um you know, it would be hard to say. Well, we're just doing this because of precedent, because you're you're throwing out the old standard, yeah. and it wouldn't be grounded in the Constitution. Mm. Uh, but on top of that, the other problem the court's going to face is if it writes, if it starts writing a new standard, it guarantees itself a whole stream of these cases in the future to figure out. Well, what are what are the new rules now? Yeah. You know, if you say the rule is the rule, you can. As the Supreme Court, you can have the case walk away from you for 20 years and and not worry yourself about it. But once you start opening that up, uh, you know, they may be buying themselves a lot more work. Well,
0: that's true. That's absolutely true. A lot of these pro-life leaders, though, have come out in recent days pointing out that 70 percent of Americans think abortion should be limited to the first trimester. So they're, they're kind of stressing this idea that abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is not in line with a lot of the rest of the world in the first place. And I guess that could be an argument with some of these liberal justices who care what the rest of the world thinks all the time. But on the issue of whether or not abortion should be limited to the first trimester of pregnancy, how much do you think the Opinion of Americans on that issue might influence the court, if at all?
1: Um, I mean, I think the thing is, I think that everyone's opinions on abortion are so cast in stone at this point that I doubt very much the court is really going to care what the voters think. I mean, they, they, they did care enough that they sat on this petition for an entire year and mm-hmm. I think waited to see, you know. Is, is first, who's you know, I mean, Ginsburg was still on the court when this petition was filed, you know, the, so they sort of waded through Justice Barrett being confirmed, and then the election, and um, so the court does put its finger a bit in the wind of the political system, but I don't know that they're really going to care. I mean, it's actually true that public opinion on abortion is, it's not you know, if you were sort of an absolutely principled pro-lifer, it's not exactly a principled stance, um, but it is a stance that has some, some coherence to it, that, that people are just more comfortable with very early-term abortions. And the further along in pregnancy you get, not only is there less public support in a, the American public, but there are, you know, other countries, most most of Europe uh, restricts abortion much more seriously than we do. Uh, you know, up once you get to... Uh, past the first trimester.
0: Well, now, this gets back to the issue of constitutionality, which is so key, and so many pro-lifers have talked about this since 1973, that we don't find a right to privacy in the Constitution, that this was a terrible case, a terrible decision that was rendered in 1973. Do you see any scenario in which Dobbs could be used to address that fundamental issue of the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade?
1: Um, Oh, it absolutely could. I mean, there would be no reason why the court can't do that. It's just a matter of are there the votes? I mean, one of the interesting wrinkles in this too, is that you know if you look at the five justices, because um, there was a case called June Medical that came up last year, yes, um, and, and worked around some of these issues. And if you look at the four justices who dissented in that, and then you add Justice Barrett on the assumption, uh, which seems at least likely that she would be with the dissenters, you know, if you have so, so essentially if you have the five just, the, you know, the the five justices other than Roberts, who are Republican appointees, if they are all willing to go forward, uh, then the most senior justice in, the, in that majority is going to be Justice Thomas. And that means he either gets to write the opinion or decide who gets to write the opinion. Um, you know, Roberts, as the chief, would be able to preempt him with that if he joins the opinion. <laughs> so if Thomas is driving the bus, he may really want to push for a somewhat more fundamental statement about the fact that that none of this ever had any legitimacy in the Constitution in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. We'll wait and see what happens, but it is a big case. You can check out Dan McLaughlin's piece over at nationalreview.com. Dan, thank you so much for being with us. It was great to talk to you. Glad to be here. All right. You take care. We'll be back.
3: Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child, and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life. I wouldn't have my wife. I wouldn't have my four adopted children. And the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn.
0: Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves 80% of the time they choose life. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28 or 5 ultrasounds are $140. And now through a matching gift, your gift will be doubled rescuing 10 babies lives. To donate, just call 855- 402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click, at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now,
2: here's Janet.
0: All right, I want to return to the Southern Baptist Convention one more time this hour because I want to follow up on some more news. We were talking earlier this hour about Russell Moore heading over to his buddies at Wheaton. Boy, this is going to be fun. Christianity today. Get rid of Trump. They're they're going to be able to unite around their Trump hatred. It's just going to be so moving to watch. (laughs) Oh, my word. Incredible. But here's the news out of the Southern Baptist Convention, the other news out of the Southern Baptist Convention, which I find to be quite telling. This is via the Christian Post. There is this new report out that the Southern Baptist Convention has suffered a new historic one-year decline. More than 400,000 members left the SBC in the year 2020, setting this new record. Now, That's kind of interesting because this was just a year after reporting the largest single-year membership decline in more than 100 years. They've gone down about 50% further. It's interesting to me because they quote Scott McConnell, the executive director of Lifeway Research, in this article, who said in a statement that the steep decline in membership at SBC congregations resulted from fewer additions through baptism and other additions, likely more deaths from (laughs) COVID-19. and other reductions in the membership of individual Southern Baptist congregations. McConnell said numerous church leaders have described their attempts to stay in touch with their congregation throughout the pandemic as congregations rediscovered the telephone. They also discovered some on their membership lists who moved away, joined another church, or no longer wanted to be a member. I wonder how many were in each category there. I I don't mean to be flippant by laughing at the There were more deaths from COVID, but that would be a convenient excuse. Well, you know, I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of people die of COVID-19. That's why we lost all these members. How many deaths from COVID-19 did you really have in the SBC considering how many churches likely were not even open for a lot of the, I don't know call me a little bit I confess I'm a little bit cynical. I'm a little bit jaded. I don't like to believe the worst about people, but I've also been around the block a time or 20 with these folks and they just don't tend to tell you the unvarnished truth. They love to spin things. Have you read Baptist Press lately? Baptist Press is like the Pravda of religious magazines or websites as it were. So you have this number of SBC congregations increasing slightly by 62. So now there are 47. 1592 churches, but 62 more were added last year, and it says the decline in membership in 2020 even with that number factored in continues a sustained negative 14-year trend that began when SBC church membership peaked at 16.3 million in 2006, and since that time the denomination has declined in membership by nearly 2 million people. A nearly 50% baptism decline in SBC congregations was also reported for 2020, which was also significantly impacted by the pandemic. That, I believe, because you have to be in person to be baptized. In 2020, 123,160 baptisms were reported, compared to 235,000 plus in 2019, representing the ninth year of a sustained drop in baptism. So, you had a trend before the pandemic. It just accelerated during during the pandemic. But you know what? You can't leave out the obvious in the Southern Baptist Convention. Your denomination, Southern Baptist, is in total turmoil for myriad reasons. You've had the Russell Moore issue. He's been divi- dividing Southern Baptists since 2014. You had the whole Beth Moore controversy and all of this stuff about women preaching. So you have that issue. You have the critical race theory issue going back to Resolution 9 passed a several years ago at the SBC's annual convention talking about critical race theory could be a, you know, a, a tool, you know, a useful tool and all that. I'm not getting the phrasing exact, but you know what I'm talking about. Crowley can be a... Very very helpful tool for us. You don't need a tool to consider issues like this aside from God's word. How do you improve upon God's word, folks? So, we have some movement in that direction to try to undo that at the upcoming convention. You have the whole intersectionality thing, you have the divisiveness of the identity politics and wokeness on steroids. I mean, during the time period that you had some of these guys closing their churches, they were all too happy to get out into the streets like in Washington, D.C., and march around for so-called racial justice. All they were really doing was participating in leftist demonstrations. That's all it was. And they try to paint it as something biblical. I don't know about you, but I just get weary of the gaslighting. I get weary of the manipulation. I get weary of the weaponizing of scripture, ripping it out of context and trying to convince people that in fact, the insanity right before your eyes is sane. I'm over that. I'm done with that. I think one of the greatest things that you can do as a Christian is to just speak plainly, speak truthfully to whatever you're seeing in front of you. And there is no, sin in calling a spade a spade. To me, that's a good thing. When I think about the admonition of scripture to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, I take that verse very literally, very seriously. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not going to be able to stand people acting in his name as his supposed ambassadors who are deceiving people or hurting people or lying And they ought to be called out on it. And it it just really gets to me how we still have this kind of idea within the confines of Christendom that we all have to be unfailingly nice to each other all the time. The old 11th commandment in Baptist circles, you shall not speak evil of another Southern Baptist. Well, that's a recipe for disaster if you take it too far, because that's how you get wolves, right? That's how you get people put into positions of power in a particular church or denomination who have no business being there. You know, this is why the Lord has given us discernment. You ought to be able to examine the fruit of every single pastor or every single church leader or denominational elitist who gets put into any kind of position in your denomination or church and examine that man by scripture and decide for yourself if the fruit is coming from a good tree or a bad tree. Jesus himself told us to do that. You examine his fruit. You should also examine his doctrine. Clearly, you have to examine the doctrine. If somebody is teaching something contrary to scripture, then you need to take note of that and call upon that person to repent of his serious error And become an actual Christian, or you need to separate that person from the body for the good of the body of Christ. That's a hard situation to be in. But that's not really the problem that I see widespread in the Southern Baptist Convention. You have an awful lot of people. In fact, Russell Moore is one of them. Christianity Today, to which he is exiting on June 1st, has made the announcement that one of the things they want Russell Moore to do is to uphold a beautiful orthodoxy. Oh, really? Have you read Christianity Today or even its website lately? All they do is talk about things like how the church needs to pay reparations to people who were never alive during the course of the slave, the, the disgusting slave years of the 19th century. None of us were around. And Christianity Today is basically saying you white supremacists in the church need to open your checkbooks, to which I have said previously, hey, Christianity Today, if you feel so strongly about this, why don't you open up your checkbook? How big a check has Christianity Today penned and given to Black Lives Matter? That actually would be something interesting to look into if they've ever made any kind of donation for the cause. Not necessarily to BLM, but that's eh, a story for another day, I guess, or a show for another day. In any case, you have a problem in the largest evangelical denomination in the United States because, in my opinion, you didn't have people who are paying close enough attention to what was going wrong and what was going on and calling it out for what it was. If there's anything that I can do to encourage people who are in a place where they can observe evil and to say to that person, expose it because that is a godly thing to do, then I'm going to go forward and encourage such people. And if maybe you are one of those people, I get people contacting me, fairly often trying to tell me this, that, or the other is going on in their church circles and it's wrong and it's bad. And I always encourage them, tell the truth. Tell the truth. Don't cover things up. We put everything out into the light. That's how the Lord Jesus acted. And that's how we're to act. We're not supposed to cover up the deeds of darkness. We're supposed to expose them. Why? What is the purpose in doing that? Not only to honor the Lord himself, but also to protect the sheep. You don't want your neighbor being deceived, do you? You don't want your neighbor being mistreated in any way or dishonored in any way. And this is true across the board. It's not just in the SBC. And I'm not saying that all the numbers that have declined during the course of 2020 were due to nefarious reasons or because of wokeness. But I think a fair amount of them were. Why do you think they had that task force looking into CP giving, the cooperative program giving, and how the ERLC and its leftward drift was impacting the willingness of Southern Baptists to be able to donate and support their denomination? He was a liability. Russell Moore was. And he left. And that's good. That's very good that he's moving on. I think he's in a much better place with Christianity today because I think he's with his theological cohorts as the public theologian. Not really sure why a magazine needs a public theologian, but this ought to give us some good fodder going into the next few years, I'm sure. (laughs) Pray for the body of Christ. Jesus loves his church. Jesus loves you. He loves you. And he wants us to obey him. That's how he said we would know if we loved him, if we obey his commandments. So let's go forward and do that. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Janet Effort Today.